The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. had Boris in the afternoon of 1,200 apologies this week. Quite excruciating. I actually think that we've hit a new low in public life when it comes to the treatment of Boris Johnson. Pretty Patel's plan to send illegal migrants to Rwanda. Now that's polling very well, although not with the Archbishop of Canterbury. You are most definitely off his Christmas card list, which probably means you're not going to heaven because you, Alison Pearson, are ungodly. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, Partygate rumbles on Alison, with Boris Johnson facing a potentially knife-edge vote in the Commons today, Thursday over whether he should be referred to a formal investigation by the Commons Privileges Committee. Some say it's all ancient history, a fuss about nothing, a plot by lefty media types to oust a Conservative government. Yet this week we saw a former Tory chief whip no less stand up in the Commons. He's a natural Johnson ally, and yet he declared that the Prime Minister is unfit for office and should resign. Yes, there is heartfelt anger and upset about Partygate, and rightly so. But surely many silent millions are sick of the parliamentary posturing and concerned much more about the cost of living crisis, about spiralling energy bills and about ongoing illegal immigration, an issue Home Secretary Priti Patel, of course, has attempted to tackle with her controversial Rwandan proposal. The Home Secretary's Rwanda plan was dismissed by Justin Welby as ungodly, a verdict which resulted in you, dear co-pilot, telling the Archbishop of Canterbury what's what when it comes to God. And why not? For you are speaking with all the theological and indeed (laughs) ecclesiastical authority embodied within you, former Sunday school teacher that you so proudly are. (laughs) Alison, it's all such a mess. The end of lockdown was meant to bring freedom, joy, enterprise, yet as a nation we feel rudderless. The UK was now meant to be in the middle of a post-pandemic bounce back, but the economy is stalling. I look at much of our political class and I feel ill, co-pilot. Surely it's time. Team Planet Normal stood for election. Is the barrel scraping now? We'd have to be like co-leaders though, wouldn't we? Like the Green Party, because we couldn't agree. (laughs) Can you imagine us? We wouldn't be like Caroline Lucas and that nice sort of shy looking man, would we? We'd be absolutely insufferable. You'd be like Bill and Ben combined. I'd be little weed in the middle being a nightmare. Oh, God. Caroline Lucas and a succession of well-coiffured men, all called Jonathan. (laughs) Yes, exactly so. Can I just start by saying that as we were coming to record, something landed in my inbox, which was from my energy provider, which had the oh ominous God. title, Alison, we're moving you to our best ever value plan. You know what that means, don't you? That means we are about to empty your bank account, Mrs. Pearson. Have a pair of socks and naff off. <laughs> You're not going to believe this, but we moved house last summer. And I don't know what got into me, but we were resorting the family finances and I volunteered to do the direct debit for the energy bills, thinking that I got the easy shift. Oh, my God, Liam. Anyway, it's all a terrible mess, isn't it? And I know that you all have been following closely that we had energy leaders this week, didn't we? Appearing before the select committee, warning that 40% of Britons could fall into fuel poverty when there's the scheduled October rise in the price cap. 
you know much more about this than I do, co-pilot. But it, it's the fact, isn't it, that the cap lifted earlier this month and average dual fuel tariffs went up from 1,278 to 1,971. And the same is going to happen again. And some experts are predicting that that cap could hit 2,600 pounds. What do you reckon? Yeah, these are annual fuel bills and they're average annual fuel bills. So, of course, for many families, those bills are much higher. The really scary thing about these escalating fuel bills, Alison, is that that off-gem energy price cap, which kicked in, as you rightly said, at the beginning of April, that was determined in February before Russia invaded Ukraine. So this escalating energy crisis, household fuel bills pushing people into fuel poverty, it doesn't include any of the impact associated with spiralling wholesale gas and oil prices we've seen since Russia invaded and the Western sanctions and Moscow's counter sanctions. So all that is still to come. So it's wholesale prices between now and October, which set that cap And the cap is there so energy companies have a chance of surviving because, of course, if they buy energy that's more expensive when they sell it onto us, they have to charge more. That's why the cap moves. But, of course, the cap's going to go up a lot more because since the current cap was determined, we've had war between Russia and Ukraine. And Russia is, of course, an energy exporting superpower. It's also worth saying on this energy crisis, that there is no cap for firms. So firms, unless they're very sophisticated firms who can buy energy forward, who have bought energy forward on futures markets and so on, they're sort of small and medium-sized firms, manufacturers and so on, very energy-intensive, hospitality businesses, very energy-intensive. They are exposed to the full force of wholesale energy markets and the UK's relative vulnerability to those wholesale energy markets, given our lack of gas storage and so on, given the fact that we don't really use much nuclear and so on. And my real fear here, as well as household fuel poverty, is that you are going to have a lot of energy intensive companies, not least across those red wall seats, the manufacturing companies who are going to struggle to keep their heads above water. The government has to do something to address this. What we've seen so far in terms of support packages for households and indeed for businesses have been extremely meagre compared to the scale of the problem. A problem which I repeat because it's astonishing doesn't yet include any of the impacts that we've seen since Russia invaded Ukraine in terms of energy prices. I mean already the figures not including the war seem absolutely vertiginous. What do you think we could be talking about? What sort of numbers? I think it's very hard to predict accurately without being accused of being alarmist. (laughs) I know that from talking about inflation for the last couple of years. Mm. I would say that headline inflation is already in double digits if it was measured in a more accurate way. I think the inflation that households, particularly lower income households, are experiencing is deep into double digits because they spend disproportionately heavily on food and fuel. I wrote a column last week in The Telegraph on Sunday that even though we're focused on the fuel price impacts in terms of the economic fallout from Russia-Ukraine, I think when future historians look back, 
the real significant impact will be on food prices because farmers are not planting as much as they would have done otherwise across the world because fertilizer is so expensive, Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, huge fertilizer exporters. You're not getting that wheat and grain coming out of Russia and Ukraine between them. A third of the world's grain exports go through that Black Sea funnel, right, onto ports in southern Ukraine. That's not happening. Those shipping containers are either embargoed or they can't get in there because of military conflict and mines and so on. So we are seeing wheat prices escalate. We are seeing less planting going on. In the fields of Ukraine, they're fighting rather than planting for next year. There's going to be a big calorific deficit and it's going to lead to escalating food prices. And not just that, Alison, it's also going to lead to more political turmoil, particularly in the developing world, particularly I would say, and I say this with no pleasure at all, across North Africa and the Middle East, the Horn of Africa, countries which are extremely dependent on Russia and Ukraine for their grain supplies, for keeping their populations relatively stable. We're already seeing in some countries a lot of political discontent, huge queues for state-subsidised bread and other staple crops. A lot of the world depends on food subsidies, a lot of the world in particularly politically unstable places. And we're not yet talking about the kind of geopolitical shockwave that the food price impact of the Russia-Ukraine conflict is going to have. The Arab Spring was all about food prices, never forget that. Well, our government is already under incredible pressure, isn't it? We had Boris in the afternoon of 1,200 apologies this week. Quite excruciating. And obviously, this major vote you referred to, potentially referring him to the Privileges Committee. Did he mislead Parliament? We've talked about this a lot, Liam, haven't we? I mean, I do feel torn about it because I find the opposition stance immensely hypocritical, raising these very heartbreaking stories about husbands not being able to visit their dying wives, as Keir Starmer did very emotively in the Commons this week. And I'm sitting at home thinking, but you supported those measures. They were awful. They were absolutely dreadful. And not only did you, the Labour leader, not oppose them, you actually would have demanded more. It just infuriates me. You know, Liam, I did something this week. I was looking I'm writing a sort of fictional book about the sort of experience of lockdown. And I was looking up some of the restrictions. And this is from, I've just got in front of me actually, 19th of June 2020, when it became legal to see dying family and friends and the regulations changed to allow visits to homes, hospitals, hospices and care homes. And I just reading this amendment to R7, restrictions on gatherings from the 13th of June. I can't even believe it, Liam. Did we actually live through this period where they're talking about where the person concerned is attending a person giving birth called M at M's request? And then it says, where the person P is visiting a person they might reasonably believe is dying, D, okay? It's absolutely chilling reading this stuff. And it seems to me, you know, even at this distance, and we talked about it all the time on Planet Normal, but it is just how monstrous were these regulations. So I suppose now 
with Boris under attack. I do sometimes think it's the least of it. You know, what they were doing in Downing Street was pretty bad. But it's the fact that they ever allowed these things to be done to human beings, which I find the most disturbing. But looking forward just shortly, Copilot, of course, we've got the May 5th elections coming up. And I was again remembering, looking back, that of course we had the, do you remember the European elections in May 2019 when Theresa May was Prime Minister and the Brexit party totally humiliated the Conservatives under Mrs May and the Conservatives fell to a historic low of 8.8%. I'm slightly wondering if they're going to be possibly beating even that dismal record in a couple of weeks. What's your hunch? Well, I certainly think that they're going to get a pasting, but I do think we're at the point now in Partygate where the way Keir Starmer is carrying on will be garnering more support for Boris Johnson than damage it does him among fair-minded swing voters. I think we really need to distinguish between the bright young things in Downing Street who were getting hammered at two in the morning and playing on Wilfred Johnson's swing in the Downing Street garden, (laughs) always telling themselves, well, we're in Downing Street, aren't we clever? The over-entitled, gilded youth that always seems to be knocking around the centre of government under whether it's a Tory or a Labour administration. And what Boris Johnson actually did that we know of so far In many, many workplaces, people who work together under difficult circumstances would buy a cake for somebody and sing happy birthday. It's the kind of shot you'd see at the end of a TV report of nurses working hard on a ward to keep body and soul together and to keep the nation's health ticking over. And somebody brings Gladys a birthday cake and they all sing happy birthday. I mean, they've all been slaving away together. And despite what I just said about the ridiculous behaviour of some of the people at the heart of Downing Street, people working in the heart of government, not just in Number 10, across the civil service, were working really hard. Our civil service often get a bit of a pasting, not least from me. I think a lot of them should be going back to work rather than working from home all the time. But that's another story. But there was a lot of hard work going on with people really risking their physical health at a time when we knew a lot less about COVID, but they carried on and there was a bit of a bunker mentality and Downing Street is a workplace and a home. And I think anybody who walked into a room where his wife had put a birthday cake and the people that work for him who have been working together round the clock in some cases wanted to sing him happy birthday, you'd have to be a lunatic to walk out and say this is against the rules. You'd have to be mad to do that. I agree with that one. I think it's going to be a question of did he attend four or five others and how many fixed penalty notices. It's the Oscar Wilde thing, isn't it? As you know, to have one fixed penalty notice looks like misfortune. I mean, the opposition will be able to make hay with it. I mean, interestingly, something as you said at the top that I wrote about this week, one policy that is proving very popular for the government with the actual voters, but not with the sort of bien ponson class, is Priti Patel's plan to send illegal migrants to Rwanda. Now, that's polling very well, Liam, although not with the Archbishop of Canterbury. What do you think? I have to say, I love... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I admire all your writing, co-pilot, but I did really chuckle 
at your Justin Welby column <laughs> this week and the links in the show notes to this episode where you took it upon yourself to tell the Archbishop of Canterbury <laughs> what he should be thinking about God. He went through sort of eight paragraphs of finger pointing at him and then you said, <laughs> speaking as a Sunday school, former, former Sunday, Sunday school, school teacher. <laughs> I mean, crikey, how long were you a Sunday school teacher for? Why did I not know this? How old were you? <laughs> What's going on? It was a very brief period in my mid-teens, but I had a bit of a crush on Keith, who was in the choir. I don't think it was from the purest of motives, but it's a surprisingly demanding calling, Sunday school teachers, especially if your own faith is quite tenuous. So let me just fit Keith into the pantheon of yes. Pearson childhood crushes, because I have got a wall chart and a spreadsheet, <laughs> and I will be filling it in after this episode of Planet Normal. So firstly, you, you went for a glove puppet on Thunderbirds. Yes, Scott. And then later on, it was David Essex. You used to practice kissing his David poster. Cassidy, get it in the right order. Oh, David Cassidy, of course, much more upmarket than David Essex. Yes. But in between the two, there was Keith in the choir. Okay. And where is Keith now? Are you tracking <laughs> him on Facebook? <laughs> God knows where Keith is. Have you is. linked in with him? I haven't, but I don't think Justin Welby's going to be one of my future boyfriends, is he, after this week? You are most definitely off his Christmas card list, which probably means you're not going to <laughs> you are not going to heaven because you, Alison Pearson, are ungodly. Well, he spoke, didn't he, Liam, in, in very, very forthright terms, using his Easter sermon to denounce Pretty Patel's plan. My take on this is that I, I don't think compassion is just a one-way street. That's right. I know that as the head of the Christian church, he has to speak up for the poorest and the most vulnerable. But we've got a lot of poor and vulnerable in this country, and their lives are not made easier when public services are oversubscribed by more and more people coming in who arrive illegally, not going through the official channels. And I actually got in touch with you. I remember texting you, co-pilot, because there are around 37,000 asylum seekers currently in the UK, and that number's going up by at least 200 every day. There were 600 people landed on the beaches of Dover and Dungeness last Wednesday, just to take one example. Nine out of 10 of these asylum seekers are fit young men who crossed the channel after paying as much as £7,000 each to these vile people smugglers. And Pretty Patel is trying to smash the business model by offering a very serious deterrent and saying, you'll come to the UK, but you will then be put on a plane to Rwanda, I think has a good chance of acting as a meaningful deterrent. Of course, we had Alexander Downer, former Australian foreign minister, talking about the way that they outsourced, offshored their migrant processing. And that did bring down the numbers significantly. But the thing I wasn't sure whether Justin Welby in his unworldly, holier-than-thou manner, was he aware that around £5 million of British taxpayers' money is spent every single day paying the hotel bills for those 37,000 men, hardly any women or children, who jumped the queue and arrived in this country illegally? And the thing I texted you about, co-pilot, was that's about £1.8 a year that we're currently paying to put those people up. And I asked you, what could that money buy? And you said it could pay the salary of 50,000 nurses 
a year. Now, call me a godless heathen, Justin Welby, but I would rather be spending that $1.8 billion on a few thousand more midwives to help out the struggling maternity sector that we've been discussing on Planet Normal. God, I'm so glad you're on my side. You've really got your eye in, haven't you, Justin Welby? <laughs> <laughs> he's got a target on his back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's a very nice man. I just, something about this idea that, oh, conservatives, they're not nice people. There are plenty of people I feel compassion for, Liam. And some of our own people are people I feel compassion for. And it does really get to me. And I do think it was very interesting that in the opinion polls shortly after Pretty Patel announced that policy, there was very strong support and even Labour voters narrowly supporting the government's plan. And a majority of British people think that those who enter the UK by legal means should be unable to claim asylum if they've passed through a safe country or have a connection to a safe country. And Liam, I think it's because we're a nation that queues. British people queue and they believe in fairness. And the thing that jumps out at me about these things is that these are... Queue jumpers. They're using money to get to the front of the queue. I'd like to see us being much more generous towards asylum seekers in refugee camps, huge refugee camps in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Turkey. Let's bring some families from there and not reward these cynical people using illegal means to get here. I think what he said was pompous. I think it conveyed the notion that he has a monopoly on judging whether something is ungodly or not, presenting himself as the divine representation of God on earth, like some kind of king in a Shakespeare play. And also, I think, while I completely agree that he should use his position to say things to take an active part in public life. Some people have been a bit sniffy about his sort of radio interviews and so on. I have no problem with that. I think he desperately needs to build a footfall within the church. Obviously, congregations are suffering. Many congregations are suffering demographically. And then the ridiculous decision to close churches during lockdown, which he should have at least pushed back against and tried to reverse which you mentioned in your column, I think that was wrong. But I think if he comes across as a kind of you know middle-class remainer in everything he says and does, he's just going to upset a lot of social conservatives and very proud people from various parts of the country who want to feel that the church is there for them. The church should not just be an extension of the metropolitan liberal elite. It should be anything but that. And that's the danger uh, he is in of coming across as just another sort of typical member of the public sector upper class, a group of people which really gets up the noses of a lot of ordinary hardworking Brits as the polling response to Pretty Patel's proposals show. My actual view is that I don't think Rwanda will happen. I think it will be there potentially as a threat, as a token. I wouldn't be surprised if reception centres that the Brits are running in northern France aren't expanded. It might be there just as a bargaining gambit. It might be there as a bit of uh, pre-election red meat to the Tory faithful and to the silent majority of millions of voters who feel they're not being listened to ahead of the local elections. But I do think in his response... 
Justin Welby has shown himself to be out of touch and too partisan, in my view, for an Archbishop of Canterbury, with all respect to him. And that's why I think you were right to attack him, Sunday school teacher, brackets former, that you are. <laughs> Speaking from my elevated moral perch of pursuing keys down the apps, we should say perhaps to listeners that we are trying to persuade the Home Secretary to squeeze into the rocket of right thinking. So we may be able to get her to explain herself. All I'd say, Liam, is it's very interesting in the Conservative Home monthly poll of how cabinet ministers are doing with the membership. So I think we're going to see pretty bouncing back up and passing her going down will be poor Rishi Sunak. How fortunes change. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Climbing aboard the rocket this week is Telegraph columnist and leader writer Tim Stanley. A Cambridge-educated historian, Tim graces the pages of the Telegraph with columns on subjects ranging from UK politics to culture and religious affairs. A prominent Christian broadcaster, Tim appears regularly on BBC Radio 4's Thought for the Day, The Moral Maze and other high-profile programmes. Tim, you've been a good friend to Planet Normal. Alison and I hugely admire your writing – We're delighted to welcome you aboard the rocket. And I wanted to start by asking you a question which I know is quite close to co-pilot Pearson's heart. What did you think of Justin Welby's response to the Home Secretary's Rwanda proposals? I think clerics should be allowed to engage in politics and should be encouraged to do it. I have no objection to it. I disagree with his interpretation of the policy. And like a lot of people, I'm frustrated by the lack of an alternative. But I do think that the Archbishop of Canterbury feels a Christian responsibility to speak up for the vulnerable, and that includes migrants. It even includes illegal migrants. Christians have a responsibility to speak up for prisoners as well. They speak up for people who have broken the law all the time. But also as head of the communion, he's responsible for a lot of the very countries that those people are coming from. So I can see why he would object to the policy. Uh, I have no problem with him uh, criticizing it. However, I'm uncomfortable with some of the language he used to attack the motives behind it, because I think that implies a moral judgment on politicians, which I don't think is fair. I really think Priti Patel wants to save lives with the Rwanda policy because she wants to discourage people from trying to make the crossing across the channel. And and I think to suggest that that's an ungodly motivation, I, I think is just wrong. Tim, I agreed that Welby's language, I think, did take me aback. You know, he said very resoundingly, the principle must stand the judgment of God and it cannot. And there was this implication, I think, that somehow he had a sort of monopoly on compassion and anyone who agreed with Priti Patel's plans was self-evidently immoral and lacking in compassion. Whereas I feel that 
resources are badly needed here. We are spending £5 million a day putting up 37,000 asylum seekers who arrived illegally in the country. And that the latest poll showed a lot of support for the Patel policy, obviously from Conservative voters, but also from a narrow majority of Labour voters in support. So that struck me as striking the wrong note, really. There has always been a tension between church and politicians on welfare policy, in part because they stand up for slightly different principles in different constituencies. The state has got to think about the interests of the people who elected it, whether they be the the conservative majority, their constituents, the taxpayer, etc. So they have to consider things like border security. They've got to consider the amount of money they're taking from people to give to another group of people. But in his defense, the archbishop, he would say he speaks for the constituency of humanity, and he speaks on behalf of Christian principles. And of course, the Christian economy is very different from the secular temporal economy. It's one in which the last come first. And within the Christian mindset, in effect, there is a bottomless pit of money. This is why archbishops would not make a good prime minister and why a prime minister wouldn't make a good archbishop. But I can't condemn Welby for speaking as an archbishop because that's his job and his calling. Can an Archbishop of Canterbury speak out too much, Tim, do you think? Justin Welby, I absolutely support your endorsement of his right to speak out and the ongoing tension between church and state. And I think most ministers who've responded, particularly Jacob Rees-Mogg, have said, of course, that's completely fine. But doesn't he sometimes overdo it? Does he overdo it? I'm not sure if it's him overdoing it or it's what we, what we choose to take notice of. A constant complaint among clerics is every Sunday they say something which to them is groundbreaking and monumental in its importance, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. And of course, reporters don't report that. Why would they? The moment they say something vaguely political, that gets reported, even if they only say that once in a blue moon. So there's a little bit of frustration on their part. Also, let's remember, Rome Williams said lots of things when he was Archbishop of Canterbury. They very often created a stink. Sometimes they didn't because no one could understand what he's saying. He has a different way of saying things. He has a far more poetic, academic way of saying things that perhaps meant he didn't cause quite as much offence. Whereas Welby's language is a lot more direct. He comes from a different Christian faith tradition. And I think when he does speak up, the way he does it tends to cut through in a way that previous archbishops said this sort of thing all the time, but it didn't tend to land. He's not going down very well, I don't think, with the faithful. There's a lot of criticism of him within the church. Do you think he's happy in the job, Tim? No, I don't. No, I think he's very unhappy in it. And I think he's waiting for it to come to an end. Uh, It is a miserable job because people are drawn to be clerics because they want to share the good news of Jesus Christ. (laughs) They don't want the job of, of managing an enormous worldwide bureaucracy let alone one which is fractured and in sharp decline, at least in the West. And where it's growing faster, it's often uh, in antipathy towards the politics of people like Justin Welby. I mean, this is the irony. I'm sure if you transpose the average Rwandan to Britain, uh, they would probably vote conservative. (laughs) (laughs) It's a far more socially conservative part of the world, and that's where Christianity is growing. So I think it's a miserable job. He's probably not very happy doing it. And I sometimes sense that clerics can reach out to politics as a way of adding definition to their mission. If they're not cutting through in terms of getting bums on pews, 
if they're not reaching people in evangelization, well, here's a way to get attention and to make my faith seem relevant. I'm going to comment on politics. And I suspect that's what's happened. He did infamously, I would say, close the churches very quickly during the first lockdown, a historic first, really. I think there were many people who were incredibly stressed, frightened, lonely, who could have done with a place of sanctuary and prayer and reflection. I did hear him in doing an interview with Tony Blair the other day in which he slightly ill-naturedly said, well, people said I made a mistake doing that, but what else was I supposed to do? He's quite thin-skinned. Do you think that was a historic mistake? I, I think he's being disingenuous. He had a choice, which was to keep the churches open. The initial government advice said that churches could stay open for prayer. It was actually the churches that went to the government and said, we don't think that's strong enough. Please order us to shut. In effect, it was voluntary. So the idea that there was nothing else he could do was not true. And it was disastrous, really, for two reasons. One, because in the same way that a lot of businesses have never recovered and never will, uh, the church is a business. It relies upon footfall. It relies upon money. And though some congregations are recovering, many have never recovered and are still a fraction of the number of people attending, which will affect finances, which will mean those churches will eventually shut. The other problem is that it sent the message that church is not essential. Because, of course, the pandemic was all about shutting down the inessential parts of the community and keeping the basics going, hospitals, police stations, whatever. If churches voluntarily say, well, in the midst of a crisis, we don't regard ourselves as essential, that sends a really bad message. And of course, for some parts of the Christian community, that's not true. Those who have a more sacrament-based approach, Anglo-Catholics or Roman Catholics, who see church attendance as essential, as a weekly obligation to be in the presence of Christ in the sacraments, that's theologically quite offensive. It works for some branches of Christianity, but for others, that's really quite offensive. So I think that was an enormous disaster, and the decision rests with him. Tim, your writing for The Telegraph spans way beyond religious affairs, of course. You often write about UK politics. You write about Canada. I've enjoyed recent columns on France, America. I certainly want to get your take on what's happening in France before we end this visit to Planet Normal. But before we move on, perhaps, from religious affairs, I did want to ask you, Tim, are you surprised that co-pilot Pearson was once a Sunday school teacher? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. But lots of people, Jim Callahan was a Baptist Sunday school teacher. There's a lot of it about. <laughs> Sorry, Alison. <laughs> you may mock, but it's a very tough gig, Sunday school teacher. It However is. tenuous your faith, if you've got a room full of nine-year-olds saying, yeah, why did that man do that? It's a test of faith, Tim, I tell you. <laughs> and you weren't even old enough to be trying to get your kid into a school either. <laughs> no, I have no excuse. I was a teenager, but I do look back very fondly on it. Tim, I'm really enjoying, you've moved over to writing the Telegraph Commons sketch. I think it's a natural birth for you because I know you're very, very interested in politics. Of course, you wrote this week about what you described as a marathon of contrition, two hours of (laughs) Boris Johnson apologising for Partygate. Bitterly sorry. Every single response of PMQs, he's bitterly sorry. Wholeheartedly sorry. I mean, you also (laughs) said, which really took me aback, so I want to ask about that marathon of contrition, but you said it made you think how unpleasant politics has become. What did you mean about that? It was like a Chinese struggle session from the 1960s. 
when teachers would be forced in front of an entire crowd at Shannon Square and they'd have to apologize for their reactionary past over and over again, over two and a half hours of trying to find a different way of saying I'm awfully sorry, no matter how personal and hyperbolic the accusations were, by the end, because people are, are running out of rope when it came to hyperbole, they were practically accusing him of killing their relatives. <laughs> and there's only so all he could do each time was stand up and say, I'm jolly sorry about that. It was a preposterous spectacle. There are two perspectives on this. One is that Boris Johnson has destroyed politics by breaking the rules that he wrote, and then he is accused of lying about it. That's Labour's point of view. But I think if you stand on the other side of the chamber and look across, what it also looks like is Labour is destroying politics by deciding that all bets are off, that all standards are dropped, and that you can attack Boris Johnson for anything, like he's a human pinata, and you can hit him for anything. I actually think that we've hit a new low in public life when it comes to the treatment of Boris Johnson. I'm not saying he's Christ-like or anything, like some sort of sacrificial lamb, but the way in which he has almost willingly offered himself up to be beaten by the opposition, it's really painful. They're attacking him on the basis not just of what he's done, but who he is. And for instance, Keir Starmer repeatedly says the people who Boris Johnson hurts most are the people closest to him. We know what he's talking about. He's talking about his friends and his family and his past relationships, which I thought there was a convention in politics you don't touch. But it's just been decided that because the left, the media, the establishment has decided it hates Boris Johnson, that he destroyed this country because of Brexit, he is fair game to attack him on any level. And I, I think that's really cruel and becoming difficult to watch. I think that's well put, Tim. I do envy you doing the parliamentary sketch because you get to watch Commons debates, which can be insufferably boring, but are often filled with quite astonishing language. I'll never forget the time when Labour's Tony Banks called his a Tory adversary, Terry Dix, living proof that a pig's bladder on a stick can be elected to Parliament. <laughs> Speaker Bernard Wetherill says, um, Will the Honourable Gentleman withdraw? It's not that it's untrue, it's just rather unparliamentary. <laughs> I literally thought of that quote, language on speed almost, when I read your excellent column on the situation in France. Last week, we were honoured to have Professor Robert Toombs on the rocket talking about the first round election with Macron now facing a resurgent Marine Le Pen, who is supported by lots of French youngsters. And you said brilliantly, a la Tony Banks, I can give you no higher praise, Tim, <laughs> that the French are repeating their, quotes five-year ritual to decide between a pompous ass and a stick of dynamite. had <laughs> <laughs> stronger language. Uh, one person far funnier than me once said that the contest was between a woman who killed her father and a man who married his mother. <laughs> <laughs> which is cruel but... <laughs> but what do your instincts tell you Tim about what's going to happen Robert Toombs for his money thinks that Macron will edge it but French politics because he'll be run so close by Le Pen in the second round will move in her direction I'm old enough to remember Jean-Marie Le Pen versus Jacques Chirac and it seems to me that French politics has actually been stuck in that for about the last 20 years which is the far right getting stronger incrementally, but not enough to beat the overwhelming forces of the establishment. But every year that battle gets a little bit closer. And the only way the establishment can just about maintain its majority status is to actually steal Le Pen's ideas and steal the National Front's ideas. 
French politics is remarkably right-wing now. There is a chorus of dissent represented by Mélenchon and the socialist, communist, Trotskyite tradition. But really, when you look at what mainstream politicians have said in a desperate bid to keep the electorate on side, the irony is, is that Remainers and Europhiles look at British politics and accuse us of being a bunch of Peronist nationalists. But actually, it's France which has moved quite dramatically to the right and is competing over far more extreme nationalist territory. Coming back to this marathon of contrition, I was interested to see Mark Harper, a politician I rather admire. He obviously broke ranks with the Conservative side. She likes Natalie dressed Tories. Yeah, he's, you know. He reminds her of Virgil off the Thunderbirds. It was uh, original crush. Oh, was it Scott? Oh, you've changed again. Yeah, but Mark Harper is quite Scott-like in his dapperness with his clip-on Lego hair. But he did break ranks, Tim, when he has called for a vote of no confidence in Boris. And I think Mark is not traditional member of the Awkward Squad, is he? I mean, he former chief whip, a man of of some integrity. So I wanted to ask you, how much do you think that that attack will have wounded Boris? He did look to me genuinely taken aback and shame-faced by the Harper attack. And what do you think is going to happen with the vote, which will be today, on whether the PM should be referred to the Commons Privilege Committee to assess if he did mislead Parliament? There's an acronym in Parliament, FFW, Uh, which stands for Fit for Westminster. And Mark Harper is considered one of the the FFWs. It's very tall and well-presented and very smart. We're not talking fit as in trainers and jogging bottoms. No, (laughs) we're not. No, no, no. He is just about FFW. But yes, it was a surprising moment. On the other hand, Harper was very critical of lockdown. And I think there's an element of principle that if a man has misled the house, then he ought to go. But I think there's also an element of you've misled the house over this. And that's the subtle cultural tension between left and right. The left is angry at Boris Johnson because he broke the rules because they were rules. The left loves rules. The right are at heart natural anarchists. They're angry at Boris Johnson because he broke the rules and they were stupid rules that he shouldn't have written in the first place. And so I think there's a subtly different reason why the two sides of the house are angry with him. But at the same time, people who were also critical of the rules, such as Steve Baker or Sir Edward Lee, they decided that his apology was enough and they accepted his contrition. So I think as a whole, uh, the backbenchers have, have rallied around. And a key reason for that is the thing that Justin Welby dislikes the Prime Minister most for at the moment, Rwanda. Over the Easter holidays, Tory MPs went back to their constituencies and they discovered that voters rather like it. And what was very striking was that the two biggest critics of the Rwanda plan before the holidays, Andrew Mitchell and David Davis, when they gave speeches against it, they put up some really weak beer criticisms of it. They did not attack it on the grounds of morality or legality. They just asked some technical questions. And David Davis said, what if these people are sent to Rwanda and they catch malaria? That's a man who I suspect does not see the bill being defeated and therefore doesn't want to create too big a fuss over it. So I think the Tory party has rallied over the holidays. I should just say, Tim and Liam, that I have this sort of slightly boiling feeling when I see Starmer at the dispatch box telling some terrible story from lockdown. He was talking about one poor chap who'd been unable to visit his dying wife during lockdown. (laughs) I think 
not only did you support that, you wanted that to go on far longer. In fact, I think if Keir Starmer had been Prime Minister, we would basically have been New Zealand. So it can be a bit galling, can't it, Tim? This was the constituent, John yes. Robinson. Yes, you're absolutely right. I don't get it. I don't get Labour MP after Labour MP standing up and saying, while well, you were having this party, my constituent was a slave to, to this rule or that rule. Well, you supported the rules. They didn't object to the rules. There was a brief period in time which it wasn't just the, the churches that were shut. Effectively, Parliament was shut. They were remotely working and they were waving through legislation. Some of it was done by instruments that you know, meant they just had to wave it through. They barely opposed it or asked very few questions about it. Really, the united opposition against lockdown was a handful of awkward squad Tory backbenchers. And co-pilot Halligan and myself, I think. Well, of course, there were critics <laughs> in the media. And there were one or two on the hard left as well, who I would say there's an MP, the MP for York, his name escapes me, she's been very good on this as well. I don't get how you can attack the Prime Minister breaking rules that you voted through and which, by your own admission, were deeply inhumane and illogical. Tim, before we let you go, I must ask you about the US. You wrote your doctorate on... American politics. It's a subject you often return to. You spend a lot of time in the States. What do you think is going to happen in America? You'll have seen the quite shocking footage of Joe Biden shaking hands with nobody recently (laughs) on the platform. What do you think is going to happen in the midterms? Is Trump going to make a comeback? Well, he shook hands with the last person who enthusiastically supports him. <laughs> and if you look at the polling... He can be so cutting for a Christian, can't he? He can. <laughs> There's a little bitch beneath that halo. A Christian with a flick knife. <laughs> the thing is, it's a two-party system. And if the Democrats are down, which they are, because not just because Joe Biden is old and looks senile, but also because of inflation and because of problems with the economy. So as if the Democrats are down, the Republicans are the only alternative who can win. And the person right now most favoured to win the Republican nomination is Donald Trump. So right now, at this moment in time, the next president, if he runs for it, is Donald Trump. And the thing is, thanks to Joe, Trump doesn't look that bad. The whole point of Joe was to be the anti-Trump and be the alternative so that America could move on. That was the one thing Biden had to achieve was bring back decency and calmness and maturity to American politics. And instead, he's done the opposite. He's made Trump look effective as an executive. And because Trump's been banned from Twitter, some people have maybe forgotten how crazy he can be. So I actually think Biden's sort of paved the way for Trump to get it if he runs for the nomination, if Trump wants to have another go. Fascinating stuff. Tim Stanley, always great to have you aboard the rocket. Thanks so much for joining us here. Always lovely to have Tim Stanley on the rocket, Liam. I think you suggested the smart money might be on Tim Stanley, Archbishop of Canterbury. It's only a matter of time. I think he's the wrong branch, but never mind. He'd be absolutely marvellous. Anyway, now on to our listener emails. Please keep your wonderful messages coming. We absolutely love reading them and we genuinely learn so much from you, our Planet Normal listeners. So this week, inevitably, we've got quite a few emails on Archbishop Welby and the Rwanda plan. Nick says, 
In addition to closing the churches and going on a sabbatical to France during the pandemic, Justin Welby is presiding over a relentless reduction in congregations, although you wouldn't believe that to be the case as there are now more bishops in the Church of England than ever before. The frontline troops of local vicars and congregations are under ever-increasing pressure to provide financial savings, while the church itself sits on billions of pounds of investments and property, none of which Welby and his fellow parasites consider donating to the poor. Perhaps we need a 21st century reformation. Hillary says, we live on a small, crowded island and need to stop being such a soft touch. I work in the NHS and many of my colleagues have studied and worked hard to be able to come to the UK legally. They are really upset when they see those boats unloading more people wanting to circumnavigate the immigration system. Is the Church of England going to offer its wealth and resources to deal with the situation? No, I didn't think so. And Steve says... Welby is the high priest of the blobocracy. <laughs> Great word, Liam. That'll be in an Alison Pearson column soon. <laughs> For what do our listeners exist except to rip off choice phrases, Halligan? Come on, get on with it. Dan says, can someone please start a referendum on sending the Archbishop of Canterbury to Rwanda? He might actually provide more assistance than he's doing in his current appointment. And please give his large house to refugees from Mariupol. Thanks. Good idea, Dan. This is from Graham. Dear Liam and Alison, I've listened to you on a Thursday morning since the beginning and look forward to hearing your views on whatever's hitting the headlines. I don't always agree with you. But even when I don't, I still think that what you say is worth listening to. Anyway, to the point of my email. I just can't justify how I vote anymore. I have voted Conservative for as long as I've been able to vote. I'm 63 now, and I voted at every UK general election, Scottish government election, European election, every local election, always Tory, even though my preferred candidate stands no chance for success. But not anymore. For the past two years or so, since the beginning of covid I've been increasingly angry at how the UK government has seemingly lurched from one crisis to another, those dodgy PPE deals, allegedly, the parties at number 10, the cover-ups, denials and lies. However, I do believe it's my responsibility to cast my vote. And here's the issue. The Scottish Conservatives are a lost cause now that Douglas Ross has spectacularly U-turned on his views of Boris and no amount of bluster from him saying now's not the time to change leader can redeem how people perceive him. I can't vote SNP, that is a step too far. All Scottish Labour, all the Liberal Democrats, and as for the Green Party, well, enough said. I've become so disillusioned with the state of British politics that if I had the chance to emigrate, I would. Anywhere would do. Thanks for allowing me to rant, and I didn't even swear. Keep up the good job that you do entertaining, informing, and keeping us poor peasants from descending ever <laughs> deeper into the depths of despair at the standard of politics in this country. Yours, Graham. Well, Graham, I'd say to you, a lot of people are disillusioned like you, but this is still a fabulous country that we should all be proud to live in, even though the way it's governed does infuriate us all <laughs> from time to time. Stay with us, Graham, and keep the faith. And I would say to Graham when he says, I don't always agree with you, Graham, I don't always agree with me. Trust me. <laughs> Liam, we've had immense amount of reaction to the state of maternity services, the situation with midwives, something that I'm doing a lot of work on at the moment. I'm going to 
carry on pressing and developing this theme because I'm really concerned and very, very worried about the understaffing and about the policy of so-called normal deliveries. Can I just say, can I just declare a tiny planet normal victory? You'll remember that I was talking last week about this advert I saw from an NHS trust asking for a midwife committed to the philosophy of normal birth. Well, the NHS this week issued a directive saying that no trust was supposed to any longer advertise for midwives committed to the philosophy of normal birth. So we do not labour in vain, Halligan. So this is from Jonathan. As an anaesthetist and intensive care physician, I have long wondered how a midwife-led unit in a setting distant from a general hospital could even be considered, let alone considered safe. Alison, you raise just the sort of concerns I have long harboured about certain midwives, zealousness and irrational distaste for doctors, an overinflated view of their own importance. Unfortunately, the situation is now made even worse by a very large elephant in the room that is hard to address. Over the years, the training of obstetricians and gynaecologists has altered radically. In my day, most aspiring young obstetrics gynaecologist trainees would take jobs in general surgery first, ideally obtaining the fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons exam before entering obs and gynae training. During this phase of training, they would add to their surgical skills and most young consultants would become pretty accomplished surgeons. Now, the run-through training means many are frankly pretty inadequate surgeons. The upshot is that should a mother need urgent surgical intervention, rare but terrifying for all concerned, then the obs and gynae consultant is often simply not up to the task. A general surgeon may well be needed, but they may not be immediately available. Obviously, this is a very sensitive issue, But trust me when I say that I recently anaesthetised a patient for routine gynae surgery and the young gynaecologist had difficulty performing an open hysterectomy. How he would have coped in an emergency to, for example, locate and deal with a major uterine bleed is beyond my comprehension. Obviously, I would prefer to remain anonymous with my comments. As I said, Liam, we are going to keep digging down into this. I feel there's a huge story and very important story to be told. And you, Alison, should be congratulated for your work in this area. I know you spent your Easter holiday weekend wading through the the absolutely pivotal Ockenden report, that report by Donna Ockenden into the state of midwifery in Telford and, and staff. It's a real landmark report and Planet Normal will certainly be returning to that important subject. Here's one from Helen. Dear Alison and Liam, you failed to make an obvious point about Partygate. Government officials were busy partying and breaking their own rules because they were not afraid of COVID. They held all of the data from our country and worldwide, and they knew that healthy people were not at risk, so they carried on their lives as normal. Meanwhile, they destroyed our jobs, our economy, and our children's education. That is the real elephant in the room that so few are talking about. Best wishes to you both. From Helen. Powerful email. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, Liam, it's your turn. Well, I think we need to give the email of the week and the much coveted 
Planet Normal Mug, to Graham. Because, Graham, we want you to cheer up. That's not a pull your socks up, cheer up. It's an arm round to your shoulders saying, cheer up, Graham. We feel your pain. We know why you're frustrated. But this is still the United Kingdom and it's still a great place to be. Here, here, Scottish Conservatives, you have our heartfelt support. So, Graham, email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put in the email subject heading mug winner and send us your postal address and we will send that mug to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and I jolly well hope you do, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find us so the fantastic Planet Normal family can grow. And do keep emailing us because we love your emails. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe, in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.